Matt is 51. How are you? I'm very well. I've got another quote for you. I'd like you to say it. I think we're going to the moon because it's in the nature of the human being to face challenges. It's by the nature of his deep inner soul. We're required to do these things just as salmon swim upstream. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. That's beautiful. Who's that by? It's none other than Neil Armstrong. Oh, yes. I know. How cool is that? He's ace. What do you want to start with first? Shall we uh, have a little chat about our astronaut of the week? I would love to start with astronaut of the week because she's just such a cracker, an all-round cracker. The Interplanetary Podcast. Putting Putting the the ace ace back into into space. space. So, yes, it's time for Astronaut of the Week. Let's hit it. It's time for Astronaut of the Week. This week, Jamie, as Mm. we know, is someone that we met at STEC, an amazing person, one of those people that walks into a room and and you know that she's the boss. She totally was the boss in a brilliant way. She was so great. Yeah, and, you know, looked amazing, just had that aura of someone who's... she owned the room. Owned it. France's first woman in space, Claudie Hanieri. We uh, luckily get her to pronounce her own name. That's true, actually. Well, I I know I'm pretty dreadful. She'll correct us both. (laughs) Well, we could quickly just have a quick recap before we play our interview with her. So she's the first French woman in space... Pretty much to the day, on October the 21st, 2001, she flew uh-huh. up on Soyuz TM-33. Oh, yeah. To the International Space Station. How cool is that? So cool. So, and I think at that point she became the first European woman to visit the International Space Station. I'd like to give you a quote from her, Matt. Go on, then. I watched the Earth turn while I listened to Callas singing Norma in the silence of the night while my colleagues slept. Yeah, so there, there, there's a little indication she likes a bit of uh, pretty cool opera. That's pretty cool. If you were going to guess what kind of music she listened to, I think I would have. I think I probably would have gone with that. Yeah, yeah, it's not a bad guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she's mainly a doctor, I think. So she's got, um, so she's uh, she's got certificates in biology and sports medicine, medicine, aviation and space medicine, and rheumatology, and a PhD in neuroscience. Uh, yeah. Just to put that on top. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, and, and I think her diploma, as they call it in France, it was in uh, biomechanics and physiology of movement. Wow! So she's a clever cookie. Yeah, she's married to Jean Pierre Hagnier, who's the also an astronaut. In fact, she was the backup crew for the Mir Altair mission, ah. uh, which her husband actually flew on. Okay, and, and they've also got, they've also actually got an asteroid named after them. Nice. How cool is that? Very cool. Uh, but she did. She did. She did actually go up to the Mir space station for sixteen days back in nineteen ninety six as part of the Russian French Cassiope mission. Ah. Then later, when she went up to um, the International Space Station on the Andromeda mission, Am- Andromeda. That's. It. I think that's. Well, nice. I don't know how the French say it. Uh, uh, crew prime objective was to deliver the space space station's new lifeboat. So they went up and exchanged the Soyuz. And it's at that point she actually, I think, became the first woman 
to qualify as a Soyuz return commander. Oh, that's yeah, not so bad for could, the CV, so she, is it? Uh, yeah, so she could command a three-person Soyuz capsule, capsule during an emergency return from space. Well, it's me and her then. We can both do that. <laughs> but you weren't the first man. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so that's why we don't really mention it. You yeah, know, I don't just, like to talk about it. it. So she retired from ESA on June, on the 18th of June 2002 after completing her uh, Andromeda mission. Uh-huh. And then she entered French politics and uh-huh. under Jean-Pierre Raffarin's government. So she was Minister Delegate for Research and New Technologies from 2002 to 2004 and succeeded Noël Lenoir as Minister Delegate for European Affairs in 2004 to 2005. Blimey. She was an advisor to the director of ESA. And she's has uh, positions on the boards of L'Oréal, Foundation de France, Airbus, Lacoste, uh, and she enjoys contemporary art, painting and sculpture, and uh, gymnastics and golf. Okay. <laughs> and she has uh, she has an eighteen year old daughter. Just as a as a weird thing, while I was doing a bit of research, I did find that she was caught up in a bit of a controversy. Oh yeah. And this is like a classic example about when. Conspiracy theorists can be actually dreadfully insensitive, right. as in just horrible people. Uh, so when she was um, working at the biology lab at the Pasteur Institute uh, back in December 2008, she actually got what she would call burnout syndrome. So right. she became pretty ill and had to leave her job for a while. And, of course, um, the conspiracy theorists linked this with the fact that she knew about aliens of course and they did. That, you know, during her illness, she used to shout out, the earth must be warned. Uh, but um, I don't think we're going to dwell on that much. No, because that's I don't think so. Stupid conspiracy nonsense yes. that has absolutely no basis in fact whatsoever. So I imagine that this would really annoy Claudie indeed. So shall we just listen to that interview, Jane? Yeah, let's roll it. Okay, here we go. Roll the tape. Écoutez. So I'm Claudie Aignoré working in ESA headquarters in Paris as an advisor to the Director General of ESA. Claudie, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Uh, the first question is quite a hard one, but I'd like to know what your career highlight is. If you could have one day that you could relive again, which was your favourite? The favourite? Mm. Uh, there is a lot, really, of uh, in- interesting moment. Uh, I think maybe the experience of the first flight, for sure. I've been selected in '85, and my first flight was in '96. That's been 11 years waiting for, training for, learning for. So this very day of '96, uh, with, with the launch, was really something so so exciting uh, to to discover. Uh, I was touching the reality of my dream. Absolutely. Yeah, that must have been an absolutely amazing moment. Your involvement with ESA, can you tell us a bit more about ESA and why it's an important organisation? So ESA is this um, intergovernmental, as you know, with 22 member states, uh, united in order to do what individually they cannot do together. That means it's completely obvious for space science, this big mission, huge mission 
Rosetta Wiggins, or, uh, uh, Lisa Pathfinder that we, we are preparing now, or ExoMars to discover uh, some life system on, uh, on this planet. And uh, not only on the scientific point of view, that's also the possibility to have, for example, the launchers or grid constellation of satellites. And it's a good representation of what we can do when we are united with a constructive vision for the future. And I do like space and Europe. And as I said often, I had the chance to... Um, to, to be born in 57. 57 for me, that's a Rome Treaty and that's a Sputnik launch. Mm -hmm. So tell me I have two stars, space and Europe. And for me, being part of the European Space Agency, it's completely what I... It's my life and I think it's successful paths for the future. And I hope it still will be very attractive for the young students, engineers, scientists to be in that uh, dimension. Absolutely. You touched on Mars just a minute ago. Mm. Now, there's talk, obviously, with Elon Musk, you know, Moon mm -hmm. or Mars. Mm -hmm. If you had to go to either, which one would you go to? I am currently an advisor to the Director General of ESA, working on the project of the Moon Village. Ah. So that's made ah. my destination <laughs> is the moon, obviously. Yeah, obviously. You have to stay loyal. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fantastic. So, and so Moon Village is next, as in you think it's... Uh, moon Village is, is part of the, the concept of the vision of the roadmap for exploration beyond lower servant to Mars and in between a cislunar adventure with a deep space gateway and possibly this possibility to land on the moon's surface to develop a permanent infrastructure that means not only to visit, as it has been the case before, but also to inhabit, to work, to live with uh, different communities, uh, different partners. And it's really an exciting project to think about. And we have to think out of the box if we want to think in terms of living on the surface of the planet. Absolutely. Now, Matt's much cleverer than me, which is why he keeps ringing me to tell me space facts. And mm. they blow my mind. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to know maybe which is your favourite fact about space. July 69, the first landing on the moon. Uh -huh. no, it's not a bad one. <laughs> in fact, that's the same as George Jack said. So, uh, yeah, so we're seeing no, but we, we are this generation. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's clear that for us, uh, so I was 12 years old at yeah. the time. And when you have that in the mind of a kid, yeah. With the excitement, so everything can happen. Uh -huh. It yeah. opens the door of a dream yeah. and to, to become a reality. That actually leads on to my next it, question. Which astronaut or which space hero was was your real influence growing up? Did you have a, a someone that you looked up to as a role model? No, not really a role model, either, either in science or in space field. But we have this chance also, working in this field of human space flight, to live some great period of our life with our heroes. For example, when I was in Star City, 10 years I've been in Star City training for my mission. My neighbor was Alexey Leonov, the other one was Valentina Tereshkova. <laughs> so that means that I was with my heroes. Yeah. And that means it's uh, something that gives you the exigence for excellence mm. in what you have to do. And that's something interesting. And um, think also being a role model is something. If the role model can make you better mm. up 
that uh, you you are and what I try to do with uh, the young boys and girls in, the, in that field inspiring motivating absolutely with a fascination and curiosity yeah, yeah. and of, of those gen- of that generation who want to come up and be astronauts is there any advice that you were given in the past that maybe has stuck with you that you can share with us um, it's not to, to say to them you will become an astronaut because there is no uh, real uh, path to, to mm. go. You, you have to, to dare uh, that you can be the next one. It's what I did. Sometimes it will work, sometimes it will not work. But for me, this uh, landscape of science and technology is so powerful and interesting tools to, to be actors of the future. That's, and, and then you will meet someone or someone, you can change the past. Uh, I think in the 20th century, you had a background and you had a career. And now it's not at all the, the mm. point. You have an initial background yeah. and you have to dare and to take the opportunity that will come from meetings, from other events. Well, for, for me, it was uh, this opportunity in the hospital. I'm a medical doctor and discovered this call for candidacy in the, in the hospital. And that means the light of the uh, July 69 with, with the moon and the paper on the wall. And I asked for and it worked. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today and have a great rest of the day. Okay, thank you very much. (laughs) The fabulous Claudie. She's just great. She's just great. I I really enjoyed our time with her because she just came across as being, you know, just super authoritative, lovely, patient kind of person. Absolutely. If if you wanted someone on your team to do anything, you'd you'd choose choose her pretty pretty rapidly, wouldn't you? She was just... All round beautiful, yeah. Everything a space person should be. Absolutely, agreed. So, I'll tell you what, Jamie, it's been actually pretty big week in news, and I think the the biggest news this week... It's been going on. Uh, well, the, the the biggest news, and I think Eric Berger managed to, to capture this the most succinctly, is the Blue Origins testing of uh, their yes. enormous BE4 engine. This really shouldn't be underestimated how massively important it is because, the, uh, you know, it's only a short while ago that people were saying, oh, yeah, this is just a commercial company. They don't have a, they don't have a chance of developing something so complicated and mm. so, you know, so hard to do. And they've gone and proved their doubters wrong. And it really is a, a big shift in the space industry because n- now it's sort of saying, well, no, commercial companies can can actually deliver projects that normally t- took millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars of taxpayers' money. And now Blue Origin have gone and just done it on their own using, you know, just <laughs> selling off shares from Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah, incredible. Pretty, pretty phenomenal. Yeah. And by the way, the BE4 is quite a lot more powerful than, say, SpaceX's uh, new Raptor engine. Oh. So the Raptor has only got £380,000 of thrust. This thing's got a whopping £550,000 of thrust. That is a lot of thrust. So the uh, so really, this is meant to, to replace engines like the RS-68, which powers the Delta IV line okay. of rockets, but they're massively expensive. Or the RD-180s that are in the Atlas V rockets... 
but they're Russian-made. So the, mil- the American military have been looking for a solution to this because obviously the RS-68 is too expensive and you can't reuse it. It's just a total waste of money. And the RD-180 is made by the Russians, so the American military are none too pleased to fly flying on Atlas Vs. So um, this is a really, really, you know, an amazing point where Blue Origin might be able to supply United Launch Alliance with these BE-4 engines for their next... Uh, for for U, ULA's Vulcan rocket, which that's is the pretty one that groundbreaking. Matt, I've got it's, a question for you. Why yeah. doesn't Jeff yeah. and Elon just get together <laughs> and just work I like together? It. I, I think I think that there's something to be said for healthy competition. I hate it when yeah. there's only one company doing something. It's a bit like I always think of it like the Beatles. If there was only Paul McCartney in the band. He wouldn't have pushed himself, but That's because true. he's got John Lennon, it's like John Lennon writes something like uh, Strawberry Fields, and then Paul McCartney goes away and goes, oh my God, what am I going to do? And so he goes away and writes Penny Lane. Right. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. I think that's what's that. Uh, I, let's think of Musk and Bezos as the Lennon and McCartney of, of commercial space flight. I reckon that Elon is Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, Just I think you're there. actually right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that. Oh, yeah, which one's which? Yeah, but Bezos doesn't really remind me of Lennon, or does he? Guys, you have to write in and tell us who you think is which Beetle, <laughs> and who's who's George Harrison? Is that um, is that Bob Richards? Is yeah, it, it could uh, be Bob? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or is it Richard Branson? <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, definitely right, Richard not Branson's more Paul McCartney. You know? <laughs> Definitely not. It's got Brano. that kind of uh, slightly. No, because George Harrison was the most lovable, lovable Beatle, definitely. And, yeah, well, um, Bob Richards is definitely one of the and most. It wouldn't lovable be Brano. Space guys. Brano's Brano upsets too many people. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a bit more of a Paul McCartney, isn't he, old Brano? Yeah, that's true. So. <laughs> So and so basically, the the only alternative was Aerojet Rocketdyne building the AR one engine, and Blue Origin have just basically taken a massive leap ahead of them in developing this huge engine. Even and I think Aerojet Rocketdyne were pretty rude about um, Blue Origin. Have used their kind of yes. used their lobbying power to, to to kind of push them out, but yeah. it hasn't worked. So there's a great quote from um, from Eric Berger's. Uh, piece in Ars Technica and it goes like this it's uh, it's from Phil Larson and he says as Joe Biden would say this is a BFD for the space industry (laughs) so that's uh, (laughs) that's a reference to uh, yeah Joe Biden saying it uh, using the swear word uh, I think it was for a medical health bill thing in between big and day uh, I assume yeah yeah and it's also uh, a reference to of course BFR so it's oh. quite clever, isn't it, that? Yeah. Good. It's a big FD for the space industry. Uh, so, yeah, it goes to show we're accelerating into the, movement, into the moment where commercial space is driving our national space infrastructure. That's pretty good. How cool is that? Pretty cool. So that's, that's, that's massive in the news, I think. I think that's, that's, a bit of a, that's a bit of a game changer. And you should go onto our blog and check out the photo of the engine. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's because it's pretty, pretty shiny and nice. <laughs> it's shiny and nice, and absolutely massive. Yeah, and looks pretty complicated as well. That's true. Um, another massive, huge one, which was absolutely awesome as well, was the detection of gravitational waves, and visually seeing this thing in light 
at the same time. Whoa. And, and this is just an enormous moment in uh, space science, I think. Uh, and so, yeah, they, they, it was two. It was the merger of two super dense stellar corpses known as neutron stars. Yeah, and they and they've uh, whizzed around and smashed into one another. And it was NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope that first picked it up. This massive high pulse of energy from the from the from the explosion. Uh-huh. So, an, you know, like basically, a supernova event. Although I think this one's called a killernova because it's just so ridiculously bright. Killernova. Um, That's pretty badass. Yeah. Uh, but then NASA's Swift Telescope, Hubble, Chandra, of course, Spitzer, all then went and saw it as well. Uh, and then loads of ground-based uh, telescopes. But the really exciting one was that within hours, um, LIGO and Virgo uh, had also managed to capture the um, gravitational waves from this event. Whoa. And that, that is like mega, mega, mega important. And uh, as Richard O'Shaughnessy said it initiates the field of multi-messenger astrophysics and he's one of the scientists at LIGO. Matt? Yeah. Matt, if I if I die, could you mm-hmm. scatter my ashes inside a kilonova, please? In some ways, Jamie, 90% of you is made up from the material created in these kilonovas Whoa. and supernovas. How cool is that? I'd like you to change I'd like you to change my nickname. Um, to, to Kilanova, please. Yeah, thank you. Or just KN, it's fine. Yeah. People or know. Oh, Kilanova. People will know. O apostrophe Kilanova, like a sort of son of Kilanova. So, Matt, what else has been happening? Uh, there's also been all the missing matter in the universe has just been found. Oh, yes, finally. <laughs> Where's it been? So, well... It, this is baryonic matter, so your normal matter. So this has got nothing to do... Don't confuse this story with dark matter or dark energy, which, of course, is an embarrassingly 86% of the universe that yeah. we still don't know what the heck it is. So we're talking about baryonic matter, stuff made from the, your normal, regular protons and neutrons, etc. Uh-huh. Just your normal matter. Now... Um, uh, using the equations of the Big Bang, and the, there's always been quite a lot of missing matter, like 40% or something stupid, of uh-huh. just not regular matter. We just can't, can't see where the heck it is. Now, scientists have often thought, well, it's probably lurking in intergalactic space. So I think, and I think I've got this right, is that the way that they've found this matter is to kind of get lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different images of uh, galaxies uh-huh. separated, you know, to like pairs of galaxies, and stack them on top of each other. And this is exactly what I do in astrophotography, where you stack lots and lots of pictures of the same thing on top. Yeah. And eventually you can eat, you can sort of squeeze out the detail that's there because you're getting rid of the noise and only... The, the only real true addition is the is the information that's real in there. And they've been able to kind of show that the in the filaments that join up the galaxies in intergalactic space is this missing matter. And they thought it was going to be there, but it's two separate teams of scientists have managed to kind of um, show it for the first time. So that's, that's a wow. relief for scientists. It doesn't show any kind of new science, which which in some ways is a little bit disappointing, but you do occasionally have to be right about stuff. So yes, they have been. So it's it's a there's a bit of a nice break through that. That is insaniac. <laughs> hey Matt, I'll tell you what <laughs> else is insaniac. That mm-hmm. I want to give you a space fact. 
Just tell me whenever you're yep. ready. I've got one for you. You've got a space fact. Go. This is big. Are you ready? Yeah. If you I'm could ready. look out from the inside of a black hole, you would mm-hmm. be able to see the entire universe in one small patch of sky, including the back of your own head. <laughs> what, what do you think about what? that? <laughs> yeah, that that is absolutely... But how would you get into the black hole in the first place? That's what I want to know. Well, there's no buts here, Matt. you just got to accept it. <laughs> yeah, OK. Just I, got I, to accept uh, yeah, it. That, yeah, that, I do like the fact that you could see the back of your own head. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's pretty. It cool. might be one of those things. You know when you, you know when you're sort of where something really like when you're sitting on a train. Yeah. And then you think the train's moving, but it's the train next to you that's moving. And when you realise that, it kind of makes you feel a bit sick. Oh yeah, that's true. And I also, reckon even though the back it would of your head be blowing my mind, thing. do you think that I would still be human in in terms of? Do you think I'd still look at the back of my head and go, oh, um, I'm going really thin. My hair's really thin. <laughs> and Would then you'd be, the be next to me going, but Jamie, look, look at the look, majesty of it. And I think the other thing about this is that the... the, the um that the universe, the whole timeline of the universe would happen very, very quickly in front of your eyes. So you'd, you'd pretty much see all the events happening very, very rapidly. So how, <sighs> that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? That is just nuts. But I, I also think it'd be really blue. There's something, there's something in my mind that reminds me of this story about that it would be, everything would be really, really blue. And forgetting the fact, obviously, that uh, you would have been killed by gamma radiation, etc. Yeah, forget but, all that. Um, forget all that. Forget all that. Jamie, I thought I'd just bring up one last thing. Go on, then. The mission, which I'm going to call the mission of the week. Okay. And it was only because we saw this thing when we were at STEC. So uh, there's a thing called the ARD, uh-huh. the Atmospheric Reentry Demonstrator. Whoa. And we saw this, we saw what looks like a kind of um, uh, Apollo capsule. In, in essence, we did, uh, and it's upside. It's kind of upside down in the uh, in the Estec Erasmus room, uh-huh. and that flew also on the twenty first of October, nineteen ninety eight, uh, nineteen years ago, Whoa. yesterday. So, yeah, and it cost forty three million euros. Or th- this is something I'd never heard of: the ECU, the European Currency Unit. I'd have completely forgotten about it. Oh yeah. So yeah, so forty-three million uh, European currency units. It's like we're in the future or something. It really it? is. <laughs> so uh, this thing flew up on Ariane five, and what it uh, what it is what it what it's kind of record is the fact it's the it's the first kind of complete European mission. This ability to get a capsule up into space and bring it back down again, yeah, had only ever really been previously a, uh, attempted and mastered by America and Russia. So this was Europe uh, doing a complete spaceflight cycle for the first time, from launch to landing, with its own expertise. So that was pretty pretty cool. And the dimensions and masses were sort of chosen for this capsule based on Ariane 5's performance. So it was supposed to fly on the second Ariane 5, right. but as you know the first Ariane 5 blew up. So yeah. loads of loads of the sort of equipment that had been put in the ARD had had actually had to be changed because it was based on some of the stuff that had gone wrong in Ariane 5 itself. 
Wow. So it <laughs> so it went up on the third Ariane five, I think. So it, it 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 was a little bit delayed, so they had to kind of mothball this thing for a bit. So Europe managed to do. So when was this? Nineteen ninety eight. So it yeah. managed to join USA and Russia in nineteen ninety eight with this full cycle, which is pretty exciting stuff. Um, and I, I took some pictures, which I have put on our Instagram and blog. We will definitely put them up. And uh, it's it's a, the, the picture I, I got a really good picture of the heat shield itself, which was made from Aliastria seal, Whoa. which contains randomly orientated silica fibers impregnated with phenolic resin. I'm going to get a suit made out of that. Well, it might be a bit stiff. It will ablate when you go through heat, and that will protect you. I'll see if they can make it a bit more malleable. <laughs> the, why are there no videos of this thing? Why? If if it goes up and it kind of and it broke up in the atmosphere, yeah, there'd be a risk of it sort of all the pieces coming down and melting. Oh, uh, and and so there'd be molten bits of metal flying down into the sea. So it meant that there had to be a kind of an exclusion zone, yeah, where the ship, ship, you know, the rescue vehicles, ships yeah. and stuff had to be. So. They could. They didn't. Fi- they didn't film this thing, so there's Aww. no footage of um, of the ARD coming back and splashing down. Oh, gutted! Please go on to uh, iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts yes. and leave us a nice review and subscribe, etc. And we really, really, really uh, love letters and emails and tweets and we everything love else that come in. We love it. We Bloody love all love forms it. of interaction. So please keep that coming in. Uh, I've had some great letters this week, uh, but we'll read them out next week because Jamie is in Holland again, or the Netherlands, we should say. We keep saying Holland, but we really shouldn't say I know. I've got, I've got to check out of my hotel. But, you know, this is the life of a traveller. Life of a traveller. Well, it's been a pleasure, Matt. So thanks very much for joining us again this week. This Thank you, guys. And we'll see you next time. We'll bye, see you bye. Soon. bye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>